That was the opening music to Vertigo, which is the Alfred Hitchcock movie that Bob and I decided that we really wanted to watch. And Bob has all the background information on it, so go ahead. All right. Uh, this is Bob Johnson here in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, Vertigo was uh, released in May of 1958, and it was distributed by Paramount Pictures. The director, Alfred Hitchcock, did so many movies, I won't try to list them here. It'd take too long. The music is wonderful. It was by Bernard Herrmann, who did seven Alfred Hitchcock movies. He had a certain style for sure. The movie had a budget of two and a half million, and it had box office of 14 million, and far beyond that after, after it was released and re-released and re-released. So that's kind of the background, Matt. Do you want to give the identification for where we are? And how I've, I had somebody yesterday ask me how to find our classic movie reviews, so yeah, we're getting so new listeners. I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from Seattle, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net. Or you can just search in iTunes for classic movie reviews. And we're the one that has looks, looks like the uh, film reel uh, on our logo. And in Facebook, you can just search for classic movie reviews and find us there as well. And, uh, you know, this, this movie, you mentioned that it had made $14 million in its initial release. But uh, it was kind of considered a bit of a commercial flop for what their expectations were. And Alfred Hitchcock ended up blaming Jimmy Stewart for that because they, he ended up feeling like Jimmy Stewart was too old for the role and that it, was, it wasn't believable that he would uh, fall in love with uh, the way that he did. And Oh, wow. It, this was the last movie that Jimmy Stewart and Alfred Hitchcock made, and that was one of the reasons. Although I watched a little uh, behind-the-scenes kind of interview with Jimmy Stewart that was filmed in 1982, and he had only uh, good things to say about Alfred Hitchcock, so maybe they ended on a, uh, you know, as friends, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about that because he's he was 49 when he filmed this, and the leading uh, lady... Um, Kim Novak? Kim Novak, thanks, was, I think, 26, 27, something like that, and... You know, that probably at the time wasn't as common, but to me today it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. Well, you know, I, I hadn't heard that uh, background between Hitchcock and, and Stewart. To me, when I watched it again, his uh, older uh, age than hers just added to the uh, the realism of it and the realism of it, of his obsession and how he tried to control her you know, in the second act, second and third act, picking out dresses and hairdos and all that. It just made it seem more believable. If he'd have been, say, 32 or 34, I don't think it would have played as well, at least for me. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't know if you... I just happened to notice this, but as he's progressively sort of deteriorating after he'd been committed to the mental institution, his hair gets grayer and grayer, and he starts yes. looking older and older. And then... When he finally realizes what had been going on, his hair was more of a brown color and, and much less gray. So they they used like makeup and hair coloring to uh, really subtly and subconsciously 
give you that feeling that he was really, you know, on the downward slide there during that last uh, third of the movie. It has so many elements to it. One of the things I read about Jimmy Stewart is uh, after World War II, where he had been a bomber pilot. And by the way, he was he retired as a brigadier general in the Air Force. Oh my gosh, that's cool! And he he flew missions in World War II and I believe also Korea. Uh, but anyway, what I read about was that after World War II, he sort of changed the kind of movies that he made, and they became more varied and in some cases darker, like It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. One that I just watched uh, a couple days ago, Winchester 73 from 1950, where he's this obsessed brother out to find his his brother who had killed the father. Uh, Northside 777 from 1948. So, But he also did the Glenn Miller story and Spirit of St. Louis. He just widened his range of films. And, and this film, for me, is one of his best performances because he plays this overly obsessed, deteriorating person who cannot shake his his obsession with Kim Novak's character to the point of... I definitely want to spend some time talking about that, but before we get too far into it, I wanted to mention that the titles for the film were really cool, how they had those like spirographs kind of yes. rotating in and out and the, the, the way they zoomed in on Kim Novak's face and... And the person who did the titles was Saul Bass, who had done some titles for another movie that we uh, reviewed. I think it was um, in the Andromeda strain. But he he also had directed one of my favorite 1970s sci-fi movies. Uh, Phase 4 is the name of that movie. And uh, I, I definitely want to review that at some point in the future. But I just think it's cool that, again, we're kind of connecting dots between these movies that we've watched well, Vertigo is like no movie that I've had seen up until that time. I remember seeing it back in Montana, and it was just it kind of blew me away because of the special effects, but also the realism of how Stewart changes and and can't deal with the uh, height issue and yeah, they invented gets, that they invented that effect for this movie. It one just one single shot of that effect called they they ended up calling it contra zoom where they they pull the camera back at the same time they're zooming in and it makes everything look like it's stretching out. Uh, one shot cost $19,000 just to set that up. Oh, my god! At gosh. that time, because they just didn't have, you know, all the automation and the... They, I mean, they were inventing it as they went. As they went along. It was based on a uh, French uh, book, and they used that title when they were making the movie as a subterfuge so people wouldn't figure out what it was they were doing. I love the uh, parts filmed in San Francisco, partly because seeing San Francisco in 1957 when they made the film <laughs> is, is so different from today. It's just, oh man, it would be like looking at Seattle in 1957 and you look at it and wonder what that what was going on. It seemed so small. Do you want to kind of, do you want to just sort of quickly go through the plot Linearly, or yeah, I just wanted to say something real quick about your comment about uh, how it was funny to see San Francisco at 1958, and the the main kind of uh, well, he turns out to be the villain of the film, Gavin Elster, played by Tom Helmore. 
Helmer. Yeah, he was in a lot of movies. Uh, he makes a comment when he's looking at, when he's talking to Jimmy Stewart, when he's first kind of getting Jimmy Stewart's character interested in, in helping him with his wife and kind of be, being a detective to trail his wife. And he says that it's it's not the San Francisco I remember it as it used to be, not the San Francisco that I love or something like that. And I was thinking... <laughs> It looks so small and quaint to me now. It's just <laughs> it does. It's long before the the architects and engineers were able to build those eighty to hundred story skyscrapers. Yeah, he was a smooth operator. He he was able to uh, corral James Stewart's character John Ferguson into a a really convoluted plot to cover up the murder of of. Uh, Gavin's wife. Yeah, so it was. It was. So, it was funny because you know I, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, and so I didn't really remember all the intricacies of it. And then when you finally realize what had been going on, and that uh, Gavin had set this whole thing up and had really played, you know, Judy Barton, turning her into Madeline Elster, and and playing that against Scotty, and and. It was just incredible to think that both Scotty and Judy slash Madeline were kind of the victims in the, in the film, you know? He was, yes, Gavin Elster was the ultimate puppet master. He, I, I had a lot of sympathy for both Scotty and, I'll just call her Judy, because that's her real character name. Uh, I had a lot of sympathy for them in the last, you know, half an hour of the film. And I, and I wanted to ask you, because I, I'm not sure 100% about this. But did you do you think that Scotty kind of subconsciously knew at some level that Judy was Madeline that 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 she looked too much like Madeline to not be her and that that he wasn't really manipulating her per se to to turn her into Madeline but he was sort of like trying to reveal her as being Madeline you know what I'm you get, you get what I'm saying I I do I that was one of the points in the movie that that was confusing to me how he could run across the second <laughs> person that Kim Novak is playing just kind of uh, by accident. I know it wasn't, but it, it just seemed to me that she was too much like the other person for him not to have realized it. But this guy was, uh, he'd had some serious problems. He had the problem of his partner being killed right at the beginning when he couldn't save him because of his vertigo. I mean, that's kind of how he feels yeah. anyway, even though I don't think that it was his fault, but he was forced into early retirement and he had a uh, fear of heights and vertigo. And, uh, and, and he had a weird relationship with Midge too. Like at one point they had been engaged and they were kind of sort of seeing each other and he would just walk into her apartment and had a key to her apartment and, and at one point, she painted a picture that resembled um, Carlotta. And, yes. But it put her face on it. And I thought yes. that was, like, super creepy. And I thought that was a little bit of a, uh, like a, what's that called in a movie when it's, uh, it's kind of trying to fake you out to maybe make you think that Midge was somehow involved in the plot? Oh, uh, kind of a red herring. Like a red herring, yeah, thanks. I yeah. thought Midge in that painting was a bit of a red herring because I thought, well, is Midge kind of involved in this somehow? She's going kind of wacko with the painting, and she gets so upset that that Scotty gets upset. But Well, and, and then when she per keep, proceeds to keep after him and, and, and when he was uh, 
seeing Kim Novak, she went too far and he got really mad at her. And that seemed to be the end of their relationship. Yeah, because she was following him and, and was kind of like not sure yeah. what was going on with that. And, but uh, So all the... the 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 main characters in this movie are all kind of modern in the way you'd see them in some movies today. Oh, totally. The, all, the, the word modern, yeah, that captures it perfectly. It felt very modern. Multiple different things they're doing, and Jimmy Stewart, the guy that's, you know, Mr. Glenn Miller in that movie, or uh, The Spirit of St. Louis, here he is. It's, he cannot help himself. He just can't. Well, when he's hired by uh, Gavin to follow his wife, and Gavin has this really kind of weird story about how his wife is possessed by this... I guess it's like her grandmother or something, Carlotta. Yes. Well, I guess that just about covers everything, doesn't it? I never married. I don't see much of the old college gang. I'm a retired detective, and you're on the shipbuilding business. Oh, what's in your mind, Gavin? I asked you to come up here, Scotty. Knowing that you'd quit detective work. But I wondered whether you'd go back on the job as a special favor to me. I want you to follow my wife. No, it's not that. We're very happily married. Well, then... I'm afraid some harm may come to her. From whom? Someone dead. Scotty, do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can... Enter and take possession of a living being? No. If I told you that I believe this has happened to my wife, what would you say? Well, I'd say take her to the nearest psychiatrist or psychologist or neurologist or psycho... or maybe just the plain family doctor. I'd have him check on you, too. And that she has these moments when she just goes off and, and can't remember where she's been and is doing all these strange things and... And Scotty's sort of like, man, I don't really believe you, but, you know, I'm not calling you a liar. And uh, Gavin's begging him to please take on this job. So he ends up doing it. And there's weird things that happen when he's following her. Like the one that was the weirdest was Madeline goes to that hotel and she goes upstairs and is in the in the room in the window. And and uh, Scotty, like, follows her in and starts talking to the lady who's at the front desk. Is there something I can do for you? Yes, you run this hotel? Oh, yes. Oh, would you tell me who has the room on the second floor in the corner, that corner? Oh, I'm afraid we couldn't give out information of that sort. Well, our clients are entitled to their privacy, you know. And, and I do believe it's against the law. Of course, I don't think any of them would mind, really, but still... I... Oh, dear, has uh, she done something wrong? Please answer my question. I can't imagine that sweet girl with that yeah. dear face. What's her name? Valdez, Miss Valdez. Spanish, you know. Carlotta Valdez? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> sweet name, isn't it? Foreign, but sweet. How long has she had the room? Oh, it must be uh, two weeks. Yeah, her rent's due tomorrow. Does she sleep here ever? No. She just comes to sit two or three times a week. I don't ask questions, you know, as, as long as they're well-behaved, but... I must say, I... Now, when she comes down, don't say that I've been here. Oh, but she hasn't been here today. I just saw her come in five minutes ago. <laughs> no, she hasn't been here at all. Well, I would have seen her, you know. I've been right here all the time putting olive oil on my rubber plant leaves. And there. There, you see? 
Her key is on the rack. And Scotty's like, no, no, I just saw her upstairs. She's she's definitely here. And then the lady at the front desk is like, no, she's not. But uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll go up there and show you. And they go up there, and and she's not there. But she was there. Like, what the heck? She was. Yes. It's 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 got a little ghost story in it. And then it's always beautifully reinforced by the music of Bernard Herrmann. The mood is so perfect to what's going on. It, it's kind of like ghost story, obsessions around height, uh, double dealing, murder. Jeez, it's like wow. Yeah, at, at first, I thought, is this a ghost story? Is this is this? Would this movie have been a better choice for like Halloween 2015? And then <laughs> by the end of it, I was like, no, this is a tragedy. This is like a Shakespearean tragedy. The ending is just so sad. Um, well, the whole plot for uh, for the first part of the movie is to set it up so that Gavin can murder his wife, who yeah. we never really see as a person, just when she goes off the bell tower. Yeah, we never meet her, his real wife, but, but we're led to believe that Madeline Elster, who's actually Judy Barton, played by Kim Novak, it just gets confusing, it is actually Gavin's wife. And Scotty ends up falling in love with her because they, they sort of go on these long road trips to the to the coast and, and the, the Redwood Forest. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, this is not good. He's falling in love with his friend's wife. This is, what are you doing, Scotty? But then we find out that, no, this was the plan the whole time. This was yes. this is exactly what Gavin wanted to have happen. And Madeline was in on it. But, I, but at the same time, I think she actually did fall in love with Scotty and, and had a lot of feelings for him boy it's very unclear whether or not she fell in love with him or if it was all an act she was a very good actor actress in that role well i to pull well, that here's, off. here's why i think she actually did fall in love with him because so after the trial so they so madeline ends up jumping off of a bell tower at this old spanish sort of church that's like 100 miles south of san francisco and scotty was there and couldn't save her because of his uh, vertigo and so they have this sort of inquest hearing, and Scotty's sort of like chastised for not being able to save her. And well, and that that guy at the uh, hearing was was really going after him. I forget his name now. Henry Jones as the coroner. He was unrelenting and uh, just shredding Scotty Ferguson's uh, psyche as best he could. So Scotty ends up having to go into a mental institution for a year. A year! A year! He was that, like, wrecked by this. And so he ends up finally getting out, and uh, Midge kind of was there to, to help him out. I mean, she kind of stuck by him that, that whole time. But he's really not the same after that. And there's some really wonderful scenes where he thinks that he sees Madeline, but it turns out not to be her. Like, it's a, it's a blonde woman in a gray suit, but it's not her. And this happens, you know, over and over again. And then he ends up seeing a woman on the street who looks exactly like Madeline, but the hair color's wrong, and yep. the makeup's wrong, and the eyebrows aren't the same, and uh, but and that ends up being Judy.
Well, what is it? Could I ask you a couple of questions? What for? Who are you? My name's John Ferguson. Is this some kind of gallipoli? Oh, no. There are just a couple of things I'd like to ask. You live in this hotel? No, I happened to see you when you came in, so I thought I'd... Uh... Yeah, I thought so. A pickup. Well, you've got a nerve. Follow me right into the hotel and up to my room. Now, you beat it. Go on and no, beat please, it. Please, I just want to talk to you. Listen, I'm going to yell well, in a listen, minute. I, I, I'm not going to hurt you, honest, I promise. Please. Just let me talk to you. What about? You. Why? Because you remind me of somebody. I heard that one before, too. And... Uh, Scotty follows Judy up to her apartment and confronts her saying, you know, you really remind me of somebody that I knew. And, and Judy says, well, was she, you know, did she die? And, and Scotty's like, yeah. And Madeline's or Judy, sorry, is like, oh, well then, you know, I, I feel, you know, I'm sorry. And he ends up taking her out on a dinner date to that restaurant where they first sort of met, right? The er Ernie's. Ernie's. Ernie's, Ernie's yeah. yeah. Which is a real place. I don't know if it's still there or not, but it certainly, it was the most famous restaurant in San Francisco in the 50s and 60s. Was it Was it famous for the red velour wallpaper? Uh, yes. <laughs> that, I don't think they filmed it at Ernie's, but that's how it looked in my memory. I've only, I, was only, I was only there once, but it, oh had, that, it had that rich sort of, red velvet uh kind of a semi-cheesy look when you think i back think some on of the now. guys at the bar with scotty might have been hitmen or you know with the mob or something <laughs> <laughs> i think the the bartender in that scene was a real bartender at ernie's oh how funny that's awesome i remember he was on turner classic movies in an interview and or in one of those documentaries that they show and he said that he just had to really work hard to say his line which was would you like a drink or something like that? You know, that <laughs> it's like one line. <laughs> but it was Jimmy Stewart. He said, wow, I'm intimidated by him. So Judy comes back from that dinner and she's like, I got to get out of here because this, I, I'm not, I can't do this. Because she knows that what she's done, right? I mean, she was impersonating, uh, you know, Gavin Elster's wife. But so she writes, she sits down to write this letter. Dearest Scotty, and so you found me. This is the moment that I dreaded and hoped for, wondering what I would say and do if I ever saw you again. I wanted so to see you again just once. Now I'll go and you can give up your search. I want you to have peace of mind. You've nothing to blame yourself for. You were the victim. I was the tool and you were the victim of Gavin Elster's plan to murder his wife. He chose me to play the part because I looked like her, dressed me up like her. She was quite safe because she lived in the country and rarely came to town. Chose you to be the witness to a suicide. The Carlotta story was part real, part invented to make you testify that Madeline wanted to kill herself. He knew of your illness. He knew you'd never get up the stairs of the tower. He planned it so well. He made no mistakes. I made the mistake. I fell in love. That wasn't part of the plan. I'm still in love with you, and I want you so to love me. If I had the nerve, I'd stay and lie, hoping that I could make you love me again, as I am for myself. And so forget the other and forget the past. But I don't know whether I have the nerve to try. And then she gets up and kind of gets this look on her face and, and rips the letter up, and, and you could tell that she's decided to try to, to be with Scotty. And 
I think just the way that she was acting, kind of the way that she was talking to Scotty, the way that she wanted to please him, and that she she kind of desperately, like almost like in a way that made me feel bad for her, wanted his attention and his affection. Yes. And and wanted him to hold her and kiss her and and he he just couldn't seem to bring himself to do it until the point where she actually did look like Madeline again with the blonde hair and the the makeup and the eyebrows and the gray suit. I and, found that really uh kind of unsettling to watch how he was making her over into Madeline. It was I did too. I did too. Very, the thing is the thing is this is what was so great about the movie. I don't think either one of them knew what they were doing. Like, he was so broken by that time that yeah. all he wanted to do was try to get her back, yeah. even if it wasn't really her. And she was so broken by either this event or things that happened in her past, we're not really sure, that she just wanted his love so badly that she was willing to, to go through this transformation again for him. And I found that to be so sad. And, and and evil, evil. I, th- I found Gavin to be just evil. Oh right? yeah, he's. And we never quite find out what happens to Gavin. Well, he gets away scot free and goes to Europe. He he must because it's perfectly wrapped up at the end for him. Nobody's going to believe Scotty. He's been in a mental institution for a year, and no nobody can talk to Madeline because she's dead. Judy's dead, and you could and and you know I could just imagine in the courtroom the prosecution saying Scotty found this young, you know, innocent girl and seduced her into, you know, becoming Madeline again because he was so in love with her. And it's perfectly wrapped up and Gavin gets off scot-free. What a, what a, what a guy. (laughs) I read that there was an alternate ending to the film that they shot where it showed uh, uh, Stuart and Novak, their characters at the end, in an apartment listening to the news reports about how Gavin was being chased across Europe. And uh, Hitch, ah, Hitch, nah, Hitchcock, that doesn't work. Hitchcock said, no, we're not going to do that. That That's too cliche. we got to leave it's it. Kinda so like that, the end, it's kind of like the alternate ending of Double Indemnity where they have yes, him in the gas chamber. Yes. Now, it's better that he sort of bleeds out. At- and it's better that Gavin, we never know quite what happens to that sleaze bag. I tell you. This movie was just awesome. I just loved it so much. And I mean, obviously, it's a 10, 10 out of 10. And so it's an 11 out of a 10. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 10 out of 10 for me. How it ends when I first saw it back in 1958 or 59 was such a shock to me that they're up oh, on that too. bell tower and this nun rises from the trap door. What is the nun doing in a trap door? Well, she, cause she heard she heard fighting up there. She heard noises, and she was just coming, coming to investigate. To, but, oh, but what was so great about that was that for a minute, I thought it was Madeline. Like, Madeline wasn't really dead, and she was yes, there to, yes. take, to take her revenge. Or maybe she was a ghost <laughs> or something. Like, I thought it was going to have a supernatural ending, and I thought that was really cool. Oh, man. And then uh, Novak's character falls, and again, Scotty stands on the ledge while the horrified nun rings the mission bell. And, <laughs> yeah. and Scott, if he was in the first time for a year, he's going back into that mental institution for a lot longer. He may still be there. He's in for life. And, I, and I, I almost expected him to jump off at the end, like just follow her down, you know? Like, I wouldn't have been surprised. And meanwhile, Gavin's got his wife's inheritance, and he's living <laughs> high on the hog on the French Riviera. Scott free. Yeah, there's. I just want to make sure we talk about a couple other things before we wrap it up. I mean, um, 
when when Judy puts on that necklace, that is the same necklace that was yes. in the portrait of Carlotta, and then that Madeline had worn, and then he he it dawns on him that this is the same person. the The thought crossed my mind that that he had kind of known, like he'd been building up to to knowing that it was her, and that this was sort of the final piece of the puzzle that just like cinched it for him, like, oh, yep, this is her. I know now 100% for sure that it's the same person. And I just thought that was really cool, how it was sort of like a puzzle piece coming together. And, and it didn't matter to him. He was hooked. He was so hooked. But I, couldn't understand, but I couldn't understand, like, he was obsessed with going back to the place where Madeline died. I, I think that he was just, that he was, he was crazy at that point like he he'd lost it you know and i and i and i wonder i mean his his reasoning was that he wanted to he wanted to relive it one last time he just wanted to he wanted to have the chance to save her this time so he wanted her to run up the stairs of the bell tower but he wanted to be able to to be there to save her and then they get to the top and he's like i made it you know yep and and they kind of embrace and then they see the shadow behind behind them, and Kim, uh, I'm sorry, Judy freaks out, takes a step back, and falls off. And you know that that was so. I yeah, it was just wow. But the other thing that I wanted to talk about was the lighting in the film. And there were three scenes that I noticed. Uh, the the very first time we meet Madeline and Ernie's, the lighting gets darker and darker and darker and yes, darker, it, and then yes. and then it's like a spotlight on her, like. It, it conveys the emotion of like how he felt when he first saw her of like elect electricity like oh my god this woman is beautiful I, I there's something about her I want to know more about her and then there was a scene when they go to talk to the old guy at the bookstore and because he knows all about Carlotta yes and again the the lighting gets progressively very slowly darker and dimmer and dimmer to the point where I could barely see any of the characters in the shot and then then they leave the bookstore, and then all of a sudden the lighting goes boop back to like normal, and that was really cool because it gave that effect of like uh, suspense, you know, like like mystery, and then and and supernatural, uh, almost yep. like a supernatural feeling too. And then the last one was when they were in uh, Judy's apartment, and Judy had a really big green neon sign outside of her window. Yes, yep, and it cast like this eerie green glow, and then the when when Judy comes out of the bathroom completely transformed into Madeline, it's like she's a ghost, you know, and she's glowing green. And I thought that was so awesome. And I, and I was like, this would be a really good ghost story if they want that, if they wanted to go that way. It's so well done. I, 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 those are, there's so many excellent scenes and the, and not only so many excellent scenes, but such excellent music. I, I just, I was enthralled by that. So I gave it a ten out of ten, and you gave it a ten out of ten. And well, it's it's on it's on the uh, American Film Institute's top ten list of mystery films. <laughs> so we we have to make sure we include our favorite uh, lists of lists. It's considered one of his be- uh, Hitchcock's best films, and some people say it's his best work. Uh, Boy, I, I think you know that's always up for debate. It is. I, it's he definitely so one movies. of the best ones. Yeah. My favorite of all of his is Notorious from 1946 with Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and Claude Rains. But it's quite different from this one. Well, let's w- sure. let's watch that one in the future. In we'll the have future, a, uh, we we might even want to do an Alfred Hitchcock month. 
We could. You know, North by Northwest, uh, Rear Window. Notorious. And Notorious. And then maybe another one. There's no shortage so. of them, that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, what's up next uh, podcast? So next time we're going to do a uh, comparison of the Seven Samurai uh, by Akira Kurosawa, and then the film that was based on that called The Magnificent Seven, with uh, Yola Brenner and a, another a, a, a kind of an all-star cast. I think, is Charles Bronson in that one? Oh, yes, yes. James yeah. Coburn, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, you name it. Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen. Yeah, so we're going to kind of do a comparison of those two, similar to what we did to the with the films 310 to Yuma. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, awesome. All right. Okay. Well, this was fun. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this is Matt Johnson coming to you from Seattle. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching. God have mercy.